Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. All right, let's talk about traffic enforcement cameras. So we right now we have red light cameras. We have intersection speed cameras. There are a little over 140 of those all around British Columbia. The government says they are posted at the most dangerous intersections, but there are still calls to massively expand uh, the number of traffic cameras around British Columbia should municipalities be allowed to install these cameras. Let's discuss with my guest, Vancouver City Councillor Christine Boyle. Very pleased to welcome the councillor back. Councillor, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, councillor, you've been calling for an expansion of these traffic cameras. I know this came up for a vote at City Council. I want to ask you about that. Let's talk about the basics of this first. Why do you think these uh, expanding expanding the number of these cameras would be a good idea? We know that they make a difference. Uh, study after study has shown that speed is a major factor in how often motor vehicle crashes happen and also how severe the impacts of them are. And installing speed cameras as well as red light cameras at our most dangerous intersections uh, reduces speeding. When there are signs up, people know they're there. They're a deterrent from speeding. Um, They make our streets safer for, you know, kids and families walking to school, for seniors walking to the store, for people commuting to work. So um, there are a whole range of solutions that we need to address the level of uh, of injuries and, and deaths that we're seeing from road accidents. Um, but this is one proven, um, cost-effective, practical solution. And uh, and I'm incredibly disappointed that Council kind of weakened the ask yesterday for mm. kind of unclear political reasons. Well, okay, I want to get into that with you. I, I li- I've listened very carefully to your, your comments on this, and you had some statistics on the number of accidents in Vancouver, including fatal accidents and accidents that send people to hospital with uh, injuries. And I don't know, the numbers may are, are high. Like, can you, can you go over those? Because I think maybe the number of accidents are higher than people realize. Yeah, absolutely. So um, like most Vancouverites, I, I drive sometimes, I walk sometimes, and I and I bike sometimes. I've had many near misses, um, but even to me, the numbers were surprising. So in 2021, over 7,300 uh, of our neighbors were treated in hospital for injuries sustained in car crashes. That's a range of, of minor and major uh, hospital accidents. It's based on ICBC data. Uh, of of claims, so um, it, it, and we know some of those are uh, a six hour visit to the hospital in summer, weeks long stays in ice in the ICU, and a, a lifetime of uh, of struggle 
reacting or, or recovering. Um, in 2021, so 7,300 hospital visits um, and 18 fatalities. 18 people died because of motor vehicle crashes. And this is just in, in Vancouver, Vancouver, right? That year. Yeah, just within the bounds of the city of Vancouver. Yeah, just That's in a, Vancouver. A staggering number. I, yeah. I mean, 18 people a year um, it is, is, to me, unacceptable that we're not doing more on this front. Yeah, and the number of uh, accidents that send people to hospital, like that number too, surprised me. And I think you said, it, is that work? Did you say twenty? Was it twenty-two a day? Yeah, so that's that's how the math roughly breaks wow. down. Is twenty-two that's, a day? You know, and and of course, your listeners will know that uh, is devastating and and potentially life changing for the the person going to hospital, but also for everyone involved in the crash. Nobody wants to be responsible for that. Nobody wants to be nearby and near missed. It also uh, has a huge impact on our first responders. You know, it's a, it's a huge strain on, uh, on all of those first responders who were already stretched. The, um, the BC ambulance paramedics endorsed the motion I brought forward and made a point of really how devastating it is for their members to be showing up to uh, heart-wrenching car crash accidents and and responding. So just layers of impact on so many of those accidents or, or crashes right. as well. Okay, so let's, let's talk about your plan here for enforcement cameras in Vancouver. How many, like right now, the, the province operates these cameras. We've got red light cameras, we've got intersection speed cameras. How many of those are in Vancouver? Right now there are uh, 43, I believe, and okay. uh, what I was proposing is, um, I think, a pretty practical um, metric, which was that we should install them uh, in intersections where there have been more than 100 uh, crashes in the last five years, um, or more than 50 crashes if it's near a, a school. And that would mean jumping up uh, to about 100 more, 107 more cameras. Um, Again, just focused on the most dangerous intersections. Okay, so that's a a pretty major expansion of the number of cameras. So you go from 43 to how many? Uh, 157 or such. 157. Wow. Okay. So that, that'd be a dramatic increase in the number of cameras. So let's, let's discuss what happened at council. So you put this in front of city council. What happened? Um, it got sort of uh, um, weakened and delayed is, is how I would describe it. Um, one of the common practices at Vancouver Council these days is that um, anything not brought forward by ABC, that there'll be a sort of big last minute amendment. Uh, tabled this time it was from from ABC councillor Brian Montague uh, who tabled a big amendment that sort of weakened the ask to the province um, uh, attempted to cut out any mention of revenue and I had specifically said that we should be directing any additional revenue that comes in from new cameras into road safety improvements. I think it's really important that this not be uh, a cash grab that just goes into the city's operating funds, but that any revenue that people pay in fines actually help make the streets safer for 
for drivers as well as for everyone else getting around. So um, uh, it was surprising to me that Councillor Montague tried to cut that part out and ultimately that got added back in. But the the sort of most frustrating and confounding um, part of uh, of ABC's response was adding a big study that city staff should do alongside uh, alongside all, all sorts of community partners um, to look at more of the specifics. You know, I, I'm happy to be looking at where we can do more than just speed enforcement cameras. I've been advocating for uh, other other interventions for a long time, longer crossing times and more pedestrian beacons and, you know, um, pedestrian-led crossings where pedestrians get to go first have a big impact. The fact is that we're just not putting enough funding into those improvements any uh, anyway. And so for ABC to kind of suggest another study, um, rather than taking action on an issue where the, the numbers the injuries and deaths are devastating, and there have been countless studies. Uh, mm. it, it's it's frustrating to me. Uh, you know, I okay. we don't need more studies. We need action. Okay, I know you're not going to drop the ball on this one and give up on it. So we'll con- we'll continue to follow your efforts on it. Thank you for coming on to speak about it today. Yeah, happy to. Thanks for having me. been playing some Beatles golden oldies for you on the show today and we've got the new Beatles song has been issued this morning and we'll tell you all about that in the final hour of the show today uh, the song is called now and then features John Lennon on vocals and I got George Harrison in there with rhythm guitar that he recorded in the 1990s and, of course, uh, Paul and Ringo is, as well. We'll be going live to London. I'll speak to the BBC music correspondent in the final hour of the show about the release of what's billed as the, the final Beatles song. So that is all coming up today. Okay, first, though, closer to home, let's talk about the B.C. government's new housing density plan. So this was introduced in the legislature yesterday. So it would allow... Uh, multiplexes to be built in single-family neighborhoods. You could have up to six homes, six homes on a single-family lot. Now, you'd have to be near rapid transit for that. Otherwise, it could be four homes. So you could have a four a fourplex built on a single-family lot uh, around British Columbia. This includes a provincial override of municipal powers. This is municipal authority, right? But the province saying, if you don't do this, we could bring the hammer down on you here and force this through, force this density to go through. Got Peter Waldkirch standing by to discuss. Have a listen to Ravi Kalon here first. This is the B.C. Housing Minister. The targets for each municipality has been set, meaning more homes will be built soon for people in communities that they love. These housing targets put forward by the province mark a 30% increase in overall housing to be built in these communities compared to what's been previously planned. All right, let's discuss the plan now with my guest, Peter Waldkirch. Peter is a housing advocate. He's with Abundant Housing Vancouver. I'm always pleased to welcome him to the show. Peter, thank you for coming on. 
Hey, thanks a lot for having me on. I love that Beatles song coming in uh, because we need a housing revolution in British Columbia. I'm not oh. sure this is getting us quite there yet, but it's a good step in the right direction. Okay, very nice segue there. So, so let's talk about this. You must, you must like this plan, then, right? You're, you're all for density, right? Well, I think there's good things and there's and there's bad things about this plan. Look, the good thing is this is going to make a real difference across British Columbia. The government estimates this will create about 130,000 new homes over the next 10 years. And we have to face reality. We desperately need these new homes. The housing shortage across British Columbia is extremely severe. This is making going to make a real difference to real people building these homes. But we also need to put things in perspective. CMHC says we need a million homes in the next six years in order to restore housing affordability. So, so even this plan, you know, people really need to put things in perspective. If we actually care about housing affordability, if we actually care about providing a future for, um, for young people, for immigrants, for our children, then we need to do a whole lot more than this. Uh, and the other yeah. thing I'll add, though, another thing that's really unfortunate about this plan is, and this is a big one, it doesn't apply to Vancouver. This only applies to all the other cities uh, across uh, BC, which is, which is good. These other cities need housing reform as well. But the housing demand is highest in Vancouver. The housing supply shortage is the biggest in Vancouver. Prices are highest in Vancouver. We need reform in Vancouver. And so far, unfortunately, this just doesn't uh, do anything for the biggest city in British Columbia. Well, Vancouver's already talked about their own densification plan, right? To do basically yeah. do the same thing. Yeah, that's right. So be, uh, Vancouver has, uh, you know, uh, recently introduced a multiplex plan, but unfortunately, right. that multiplex plan was, in a lot of ways, even less ambitious than the uh, than the than the province's one. The Vancouver multiplexes were specifically designed to be economically barely viable, barely feasible. It's makes you can make just as much money building a house as you can building one of the multiplexes, and so because of that, staff specifically designed it so that. It, only be very limited uptake. They estimated only about 200 new multiplexes a year, which again, Vancouver, we have a housing shortage in the hundreds of thousands of homes, a couple hundred homes here. I mean, it's good. It's better to allow this than to not do it. People should be allowed to build a multiplex on our property if they want to. The government shouldn't tell them they can't. So it's, a, it's still a good mm. thing to happen. But if we're putting in a perspective of the housing crisis we're in, if we actually want to make a difference, it, it just doesn't go far enough. And the, this is one way that the province's plan is actually better than Vancouver's. Um, it has less restrictions on the size of the multiplex. So they're, they'll, they should be a bit more uh, viable you know, a bit more attractive okay. for people to build and live in them. So, so that's a good thing. It's a shame it doesn't apply in Vancouver. Speaking to Peter Waldkirch, Abundant Housing Vancouver. Here's what I'm wondering about. Let's say you live in one of these single-family neighborhoods right now. You live in a detached home if you're fortunate to be in that position. Your next-door neighbor uh, says, well, guess what, gang? I I'm going to tear down my house, and I'm putting up a sixplex next door to you or across the street from you. How do you think, like, Peter, what, what do you think most people, how, how would most people react to that? Do you think most people would say, yeah, great. You know, put up put up a fourplex or a sixplex next door to me. I got no problem with that. Or do you think some people are going to say, "Hang on a second here. Is there enough parking around here?" Like what? Like I just think that it could be a recipe for, uh, you know, opposition to it. But your thoughts? 
Yeah, you know, this is definitely an issue where people are tend to be supportive of housing generally. They get a bit less supportive when it's sort of right next to them. But this is one of the right. reasons why we need higher levels of government to sort of have a bigger role in our land use planning. Because if everybody says, no, not in my backyard, not next to me, then nothing gets built anywhere. And that's basically the yeah. situation we've been in since around the 1970s. For the last 50 years, it's been almost impossible to build new housing across um, much of British Columbia, especially in Vancouver, where it's needed the most. And so we have a 50-year gap. We sort of froze most of Vancouver in amber in the 50s. And since then, it hasn't been allowed to change. So, you know, we need, this is really a very small incremental step. Um, and even that, like I said, when you put it in perspective, isn't enough to make a real difference in our housing crisis. So, you know, I believe that British Columbians, when they really think about it, people are, we're gen I think we are, can be a generous people that want to have a prosperous future for ourselves, for our children, for young people. That means accepting change sure. in our neighborhoods. There's no okay. way around that. We need to embrace this. Okay, let me ask you uh, your thoughts on another issue that, that has been big on the housing file, and that's the, the government's crackdown on Airbnb and short-term rentals. And I was reading a, a Reddit thread on this topic the other day. And a lot of people on this thread were posting that they have zero sympathy for real estate investors. So someone who has bought a home, whether it's a condo typically, with the plan to rent it out on Airbnb, generate income for themselves on the side. Now along comes the B.C. government, brings the hammer down and says, you can't do this anymore. Now, I have heard from Airbnb owners who say this is not fair. This is this is ruining my retirement planning here right now. And I just wonder if you think, Peter, if you have any sympathy for someone in that position or if anybody does. Now, have a listen to Victoria Condo owner here, Zoltan Soges, now speaking to Czech TV. Now, this guy bought a, a condo in Victoria and he said he's trying to sell it, but guess what? He said he's having trouble selling it now because you're not allowed to rent it out on Airbnb anymore. Have a listen. They've all walked away. Every single person who was looking at our unit was looking at it for short-term investment. So we've dropped our price by $50,000. I just don't support taking people's land rights away from them when there's direct financial consequences for it. Okay, do you have any sympathy for him, like someone who's bought an investment property and now the government has told him you can't rent it out on Airbnb anymore? Peter, your thoughts? You know what? In our housing discussion, a lot of people really enjoy like, uh, a sort of schadenfreude. There's entire pe there's people on Twitter who all they do is scour listings looking for people who have lost money. I never like that. I think it's really sort of unfortunate to see. But but that being said, with people who've uh, invested for the sole purpose of Airbnb, you know, every business is going to have some risk. I, I don't like it, but that's true, right? And the writing has been on the wall for years that the government is going to crack down on Airbnb. Vancouver. Yeah cracked down on Airbnb in 2018. That's five years ago. And they've been talking about it for years leading up to that. This government has been talking about uh, how, you know, obviously housing is a major item for them. They've been talking about uh, cracking down on Airbnb for quite a while now too. So um, I definitely don't like it when I, I don't take any pleasure out of watching anybody sort of, uh, you know, lose, uh, especially small investors losing their money. Um, but it, 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 nobody should have been caught by surprise for this. And the reality is there's still plenty of ways for people to invest in real estate if that's what they want to, right? Okay. There's lots of opportunities to provide housing for people. Okay, we're talking housing with my guest, Peter Waldkirch. Lots of calls. Let's get right to it. Jack and Langley. Hi, Jack. Go ahead. Hi, how are you? 
I'm good. Go ahead. I, I just don't like, we're starting to get our government, I think we're overreaching, telling municipalities what to do. I mean, we're going to take a perfectly nice house on a nice lot where children can play outside, and we want to put four to six there. I mean, you might as well put an apartment building up. If you have a fire, they're all going to go. I mean, if someone worked hard in their life and managed to buy a second home and they're renting it out, then they should be allowed to rent it out as Airbnb. We're slowly allowing our government to have too much control. I mean, it's almost communism. And so far as the housing crisis, this is man-made. We need to slow, and I'm an immigrant, so I'm not anti-immigrant. We need to slow down the numbers till we catch up with the house and and not say, okay. oh, we need all them because they're tradespeople. They're not. Thank you, thank you, Jack. Very- thank you, Jack, for the call. Okay, government overreach. Peter, your thoughts? I mean, I think that's a little bit the wrong way of looking at it. Call it almost communism. It's, it's actually, I think, completely backwards. The status quo, what we have right now, is the government micromanaging what people are and aren't allowed to build on their own property, right? Right now, the government says, hey, I've got the, somebody has some property. The government says, you're not allowed to build a duplex on it. You're not allowed to build a basement suite in it. You're not allowed to build an apartment on it. You can't do this. You can't do this. You can't do this. That's the status quo right now. What we're seeing right now is actually a lessening of government overreach so that people Mm. can do more with their property. And I think that's the direction we need to go. The reason we have a housing crisis is because the government has been too into micromanaging what people can and can't build on their property. And that's why we have a housing shortage. That's a good point. Curtis in Burnaby. Hi, Curtis. Go ahead. Yeah, hi, guys. Uh, Last Friday, the Metro Board of Vancouver approved an increase in development cost charges. So no municipality anywhere is doing anything to help the housing crisis. They just keep increasing costs. They went against even what the federal minister was telling them, look, this is a little excessive. You guys want to cut costs on housing. This is no way to do it. Contrary to all the feedback they got, the board still raised all the development permit costs. Ridiculous. Okay, that's a good point, Curtis. Thank you for that. Peter, your thoughts? Oh, yeah, that was a huge problem, and Curtis is absolutely right about that. The Metro van voted to increase fees on each apartment from about $10,000 per unit to over $30,000 per unit. And this is just one level of fees. There's other local municipal fees and taxes and all sorts. This is just one type of fee. They shifted. It it was... incredibly dramatic increase that really should not have happened. And it's really a a great example of the sort of problems we're in. It's going to make housing more difficult to build just when we need it the most. Richard in Vancouver. Hi, Richard. Go ahead. Good afternoon or uh, morning. Uh, Hey, listen, I I just have a lot of problems with this, too. I remember at one time uh, zoning was uh, designed to protect the integrity of neighborhoods, and now it's being used to exploit neighborhoods, right, and forcing basically what I would consider to be junior apartment rezonings of uh, single-family lots, right? Uh, That's not very green, filling up our landfills with existing housing. And I think one of the things that no one's really is the unintended consequences about this. You talked about parking, but your land assessment process is based on best use of property. So basically what you're going to do by allowing this, you're going to increase land values and taxes being paid by people that still maintain their Mm. single family houses. And basically you're going to basically tax people out of their neighborhoods and force them out because of this, you know, redevelopment process yeah. that basically is essentially let's talk it's junior apartments in single family neighborhoods 
Thank you, Richard, for the call. Yeah, there is an argument that this could increase the number, uh, uh, increase more housing, but it would still be unaffordable housing. Let's go to Andy on the line in Kelowna. Hi, Andy. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Um, I was visiting um, uh, Surrey in Vancouver this summer three, four times, uh, and all these single-family homes, they're already fourplexes and sixplexes. Each home has a two basement suites, a standard family living upstairs, no parking on the street, no parking on the driveway. Wife is putting the two red cones outside because husband is going to come from work and he's going to park over there. So what do these government needs to do? We already have a three plexes and four plexes in each single home and minister housing. He knows that he lives there. So what they need to do, extend the building permits, go build communities, build some hospitals and schools and transportations and more homes in urban and suburban areas. Leave these single family homes alone. They already okay. fourplexes. No okay, matter where Andy, you live. Thanks a lot for calling in. I appreciate it. Yeah, we got 30 seconds left here, Peter. I mean, I've heard the argument about Carmageddon. You're going to have parking chaos. We're already seeing big parking problems in parts of Vancouver where they have densified. 30 seconds, your thoughts. Well, I'll just pick up on one common theme among these people, which is uh, which is the environment, right? Parking and the environment. The reality is if we care about the climate crisis and we are in a climate crisis, one of the most important things we can do is build better cities, more compact cities, denser cities where people can walk to work, they can take the bus to work, they can transit work. That's how we solve the parking problem. That's how we solve the traffic okay. problem. That's what we need to do to address the climate crisis. Peter, thanks for coming on today. Hey, thanks a lot. Had a great time. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. John Lennon, George Harrison, Paul McCartney, and Ringo Starr. The biggest attraction in the whole world. Here they are. With the Beatles. The Beatles. Here are the Beatles. When we lost John, we knew that it was really over. I was talking to Yoko, and she said, Ah, oh, I think I've got a tape of John. Paul called me up and said he'd like to work on Now and Then. He put the bass on, I put the drums on. It's the last song that my dad and Paul and George and Ringo will get to make together. How lucky was I to have those men in my life? All right, there you go. That is a big day today for Beatles fans all around the world. I am one who isn't a Beatles fan, and today is the day. Finally, it is the final Beatles song. That's what they're calling it now. Now and Then is the name of the song. All four Beatles on this song just released this morning. We're going to play a little bit of it for you here in a second. Let's check in with Mark Savage now. Mark is the music correspondent for the BBC, and I'm so pleased you could join us from London today. Hi, Mark. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great. And, uh, it's a busy day for you, and I'm very grateful to you for taking a few minutes here with us because this is so exciting here to talk about the release of this new Beatles song, the final Beatles song. So, Mark, let's, let's have a little listen to it here, okay? So let's have a little listen to Now and Then, and then I want to get your thoughts on this song. Let's listen. 
bit of Now and Then, the brand new Beatles song. Mark, how did all this happen here? This is amazing. This is a song that spans five decades. John Lennon wrote this during his solo period in 1978, sitting at a piano in his apartment block in New York. Uh, He just had a portable cassette recorder sitting on top of his piano, knocking out this demo. Maybe it was going to be a solo song for him later. Nobody really knows the answer to that. But after he died, after he was brutally murdered in 1980, Yoko Ono gave the cassette of this song to the remaining Beatles and said, I think he would have wanted you to have this. And and that cassette also recorded, uh, also contained Free as a Bird, uh, which the Beatles recorded in 1995, and Real Love, which they put out the following year, 1996. But they never thought they would be able to make something of now and then. The recording was just not clean enough. There was a lot of tape hiss. John Lennon's voice faded in and out over the piano. Uh, and there was a mains hum, a big buzz right in the background. You can actually hear the demo uh, if you go to YouTube and hear how bad the quality was. But Paul McCartney persisted with it. He saw something magic in this song. There was something about it that spoke to him across the years. And so he came back to it over and over again until recently uh, the development of artificial technology and machine learning meant that the Beatles were able to take that tape and have a piece of software that was trained on John Lennon's voice that was able to separate out all of all of the noise all of the garbage material on that recording and just bring john to the fore and if you hear the a cappella version it sounds like he's singing in abbey road and finally after all these years they were able to make this song and it is hugely emotional yeah, it really is. It really is touch, touching to hear his voice in in such a, a cleaned up fashion. The sound quality is amazing. Of course, we've also lost George Harrison, but George Harrison is on this this out this uh, song too, right? How did that happen? So, like I said, they tried in 1990s while they were making "Free as a Bird" to make a version of this song, and George did lay down a guitar part, and eventually that was canned. But when they came back to make this new recording, that still existed in the Beatles' archives, and so they've put that on there. They've also put in uh, some backing vocals that the Beatles recorded for other songs, just little oohs and ahs in the background to give it that feeling of all four of them singing together. But for me, the emotional core of this song is john and paul singing to each other about missing a dear friend and we know that the beatles split up in 1970 and there was a lot of acrimony there was a lot of anger but when you hear them with that distance of time and the the healing that has that had gone on by the time john died singing a song of coming together i had to use another beatles title it it really does kind of tug at the heartstrings yeah, it really does. I've been listening to it this morning, and I found I find it quite a moving song. And would would you say that this is a a a, a good quality song? Like obviously the the technical achievement here of using artificial intelligence and and all the technological wizardry that was used to produce this. What what would you say about the general overall quality of the song? Would you say it's a it's a good it's a good really solid great Beatles song? It's a great John Lennon song, I think. It's very similar to the sort of apologetic love songs he was writing in the 1970s. Songs like Jealous 
the sky, which are classics as well. Does it capture the spirit of the Beatles? I mean, in a way it does, because it's the last time we'll hear all four of them playing on a on a new song. Uh, it's got a string arrangement by Giles Martin, the son of George Martin, who was often called the fifth Beatle. Um, I don't think it's a come together or a strawberry fields forever, but neither yeah. is it an embarrassment. And if this is the way that the band are saying goodbye, it's a really, really fitting full stop on on an amazing career. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think it's really it's really an amazing, um, amazing thing. And here's another exciting part of this. There will also be a a music video. A video is going to be released to go along with the song. Mark, tell me about that. So, yes, Peter Jackson, uh, who made the Lord of the Rings films uh, and also made the Beatles documentary Get Back, was kind of I believe he was strong armed into making a video for the Beatles. He was anxious, he said, uh, about whether or not he'd be up to the task. Um, but when he heard the song, it gave him an idea. Uh, and he went back to the archives. He's pulled out lots and lots of old footage of the band playing together, um, some of which has never been seen before, including the earliest ever footage uh, shot of the Beatles back in the 1960s, before Ringo Starr even joined the band. Um, and I've actually seen it. Um, I don't even know if I'm allowed to tell you that I've seen it. But when it comes out <laughs> tomorrow, it really captures the humour that we know and love from the Beatles, in, in especially in the early days. You see them messing around in the studio, but you also see moments where uh, John and George are superimposed over current footage of Paul and Ringo playing now and then this new song. And there's something spooky about it but also something that really really illustrates their friendship and the fact that that friendship endures through space and time even after the death of two of their most beloved friends yeah speaking of mark savage bbc music correspondent talking about the release of the last Beatles song today the video being released tomorrow yeah and i just learned about reading your coverage on the bbc website today mark about the existence of this this lost video footage the earliest uh, footage of the beatles playing together before ringo Starr joined the band so that was when pete best was the drummer right so that he's in this video that's right. He is. Um, wow. I mean, he's almost in the video. If you if okay. you see the footage, he's actually obscured by the other three members because he's sitting behind a drum kit. Drummers never get into the photos. I'm a drummer and I know that for real. Um, but this <laughs> is footage that was filmed at uh, a church hall in Birkenhead near Liverpool in February 1962. So that's almost a year before the Beatles' first single came out. Uh, and it was rediscovered um, by Pete Best and by his brother Rogue, uh, and they handed it over. And it's only a couple of seconds uh, in, in the video itself. Uh, and there is going to be a longer version of that footage. I think it's uh, about a minute and a half long in Cinefilm that is going to the Beatles Museum in Liverpool. Okay, well, it's it's all very exciting. Mark, I know it's a very busy day for you covering this big story. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.